This moment in our wild on our public lands is brought to you by our partners at the Wilderness Society, founded by conservation giants like Aldo Leopold, Bob Marshall, and honored in the imagery of former council member Ansel Adams. The Wilderness Society has had a mission protecting our public lands since 1935. In this time of unprecedented threat to the places you care about, please consider learning and offering your support at wilderness.org. Terry here. I'm feeling a little chilly here on July 1st. Maybe summer, but it's about 40 degrees up here in the backyard playground on Hindman Peak at about 12,000 feet in the Pioneer Mountain Range. We got a high mountain breeze and clouds moving fast over the Lost River Range out to the east. And I'm watching the cloud caps whip across the summits of Old Hyman and Cobb, just here to my south. And I can see home, where about six months ago, I caught up with a close friend of mine and had a very insightful and informative conversation that I'm gonna bring to you now. Hope you guys enjoy. Born from our experiences as explorers and forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. The process is in and of itself important in that it gives you the data that you need to craft your project plan. But more importantly, the process is the means by which you become an honest thought partner with your community and make it very clear that this isn't a top-down community solution. This is a grassroots community solution that you're trying to investigate and build together. I think that the most important thing is to have an open mind mm -hmm. as to the great privilege and the great resources you're fortunate enough to sort of help bring into the community and being open enough to hear from the community what works best for them and being able to adjust your assumptions as you learn more. Welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is the place for meaningful conversations with accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers, and influential activists. Through their journeys, stories, and life discoveries, we deconstruct how our guests add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with their passion for adventure. Welcome to episode 13, our very first Activist Toolkit episode, performing a needs assessment with Pia Sangswang Moffat. Have you ever fallen in love with a small village on your time away on adventure? Felt compelled to give back somehow, but didn't really know where to start? Or perhaps you had an idea to do something at home, maybe a garden project for the impoverished in your community, but were afraid your idea may not translate into something that they would embrace. You know, maybe giving back isn't even on your radar screen quite yet, but I'll tell you what, keep this podcast in mind when you're ready because there are some real valuable insights in here. Today, we talk about the process of performing a needs assessment 
which is the foundation for effective and long-lasting impact. You know, back in the first episode of The Adventure Activist, I sat down with Conrad Anker and Jenny Lowe Anker to hear about the legacy of Alex Lowe and the mission of the Kumbu Climbing Center. After that conversation, I was honored to be asked by Jenny to travel to Nepal, help with the program, and investigate how their foundation can best support the health in the village of Fort Say. To help address that mission, I reached out to a friend and Adventure Activist board member, Pia Sangswang Moffat, for some advice. With her foundations as a public interest law fellow at Harvard Law School, Pia has since built over 25 years of diverse experience within the nonprofit and private sectors, with a special focus on venture philanthropy, education policy, social entrepreneurship, nonprofit management, and even film. In the early 1990s, Pia helped launch the very first social entrepreneur-focused venture philanthropy fund in the United States, the Echoing Green Foundation. With leading New York City-based venture capital firm, General Atlantic Partners, that group funded over 300 nonprofit startups worldwide in the environment, education, public health, and youth service arenas. As an independent strategy consultant focusing on education, nonprofit, and social change initiatives, Pia's long-term clients have included the Broad Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the College Board, and the Prudential Foundation. In addition, Pia produced documentary films and public education campaigns for the J. Paul Getty Trust, the Getty Conservation, and the Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art. Using the context of my upcoming trip to Nepal last winter, Pia and I caught up on a cold January day so I could pick up some pearls from her expertise. We started elaborating on what exactly is a needs assessment, why you should do it, who should be involved, and how you develop your questions and stakeholders for the mission ahead. Hope you learned something and enjoy. It's a multi-step process, I think, doing a needs assessment. Why would you do it? We've talked about some of the bigger, broader benefits, but specifically it helps you develop uh, a plan. It helps you develop a deeper understanding of the community you want to work in. And there are often social, political, cultural structures and norms in place that you have to understand yeah. and you have to work with if you want to be successful long term. Uh, it will help you uncover what you're dealing with in those areas so that you aren't surprised later down the road after you've put money or time or brought a lot of the people along. Uh, you won't be blindsided right. by an obstacle down the road. Also, doing a needs and resource assessment helps you prioritize your work and it helps you efficiently plan to solve any challenges that come along. And like I said earlier, it, I think the most crucial piece of this is that it builds credibility for you as a community partner um, in, in developing this, this roadmap. And if you understand the community's priorities before you begin your work, uh, if they happen to be a little different than the priorities you have, it gives you time and opportunity to mesh those together so that you're all working towards the same goal. So if you want to start, Terry, I mean, we can start yeah. piece by piece. I mean, who should be involved in a needs and resource assessment when you go into a community? Well, I think that your best results come from fully engaging all the community stakeholders who are going to be both directly impacted by the project you want to do and indirectly impacted by the project. Directly, these are community members who are experiencing the needs that you want to address. 
So for example, I knew someone who was working on a transportation project for the elderly in a small community. And if that is the goal of your project, then you should definitely be engaging in your group, elderly people who have community transportation needs. You should talk to the official um, service providers in the community that you're going into, if if that's health and human service providers, um, if that's people who work in the hospital, people who work for the county, depends on the context that you're working in. You should definitely involve officials, elected officials and leaders. Um, They will, you know, understand what you want to do. Engaging them will help them understand that you're serious about helping their community and you're probably going to need to get their buy-in at some point down the road. So engaging them early in the process with communication is important. Through these conversations, you're going to figure out who the influencers are in your community, and they may not be the people that you think. They may not be people that are identified in any elected official capacity. They may not be business owners, but they may be matriarchs or patriarchs or families who've been around for a long time in the village that you're working in. And having them be on your side or at least weighing into what you want to do is really important. People who own businesses in the community are important to talk to. And then also activists, people who may not be working in the direct area you're interested in, but have been doing community activism in other areas. They'll have run into the political barriers that you may run into. They'll run into the resource challenges that you may run into. So speaking with them early on will help you figure out your roadmap as well. And what do you think is the the first question to really ask all those people. I mean, I think one concept that you brought up before was this idea of just making sure your idea even makes sense to them. Yeah. So I do think you should start by being able to clearly articulate what it is that you want to address. And I think that how you nuance that articulation is important. So Mm -hmm. you don't want to lead off by saying that you absolutely know what the problem is and you absolutely know what the answer is. You might want to state this as a hypothetical, Mm -hmm. that you've noticed or you've observed something, that you have a certain set of skills that you want to bring to help address this potential challenge or need that you Mm -hmm. see in the community. And then you want to start asking questions. You want to start asking people if they agree with what you see. Um, And you want to ask the same question of a bunch of different community stakeholders. And the same question is important because when you do your analysis at the end of your assessment, you want to be able to transparently report back to the community that you asked these questions, and you need to be really clear what the questions are that you asked, and here are the answers that you got. Keep in mind that you may be defending some positions, you may be making a case for some positions, so you want to be able to transparently report the data that you find back out to the community. It may surprise the community. Everybody sits in their own niche, and so a business owner or the business community might be surprised that this other segment of the community has reported out at 90% yeah. that they absolutely need help with X, Y, and Z. Or an elected official might be surprised that the rest of the community wants this over that. So you're actually doing um, 
something important for the community and reporting back out. Yeah. So don't keep the the information you find to yourself. I think you have an obligation if you're asking questions of community stakeholders to report back out what you find. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because you're you're one of the benefits of coming in as an independent entity, an outsider, is you become this unbiased kind of survey resource. Mm-hmm. It's not something that maybe would come up in casual conversation in the community, but you ask a specific question, you actually expose that there is some disparity in people's opinions about what they need. Well, and I think that's a really good point. I think that being both in perception and reality an honest broker of information is very, very important when you're an outsider. And I'm assuming you're going to be an outsider going into this community with a good idea and good intentions and potentially good resources that you aren't seen as being biased for a certain community interest over another community interest. So being a, you know, positioning yourself in and acting as an honest broker is very important to your credibility and trust. Yeah. And it's also, I think, an important point, because even as I'm looking ahead to the next couple weeks here, there was part of me that was already assuming that I would get kind of a consistent answer from everybody. But you're exactly right. If I was to pull people in my my own community about a need for a new park downtown, I probably would get mm-hmm. a number of different opinions. There's no reason why a small village in Nepal would be any different. No, and I, in my experience, the smaller the context, the more opinionated <laughs> yeah. the the answers will be. I love your idea, but it's next to my uncle's house, so no. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And even in our small yeah. community here in Sun Valley, there are a number of things that I've heard proposed that I may personally um, really support, and then I'm always surprised by the large faction of people mm-hmm. who actually see completely opposite from what I do. So. Right. So I guess let's spin this back to make it a little more uh, specific. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the assumption of where I'm going in the small village in, in Fort Say is that it is a little too isolated from uh, a regular healthcare provider, whether it be a dentist, uh, someone who can deal with uh, a skin infection or even deal with pregnancy or childbirth. And it's a good day's walk uh, for a healthy individual to get to the nearest hospital, uh, mm-hmm. the Kunde Hospital from the uh, Himalayan Foundations that was established by Sir Edmund Hillary a number of decades ago. And so I think from our perspective, the assumption is that the community certainly would like to have a health post there. They're not on the major trekking route uh, that most tourists go through. Many people wouldn't go there uh, on their own they may benefit from actually having a community resource and health post in that area. Just simply surveying a number of different people in the village as mm-hmm. far as whether they would value having a full-time health post and healthcare provider is, is probably the simplest enough first question mm-hmm. uh, to ask, or perhaps asking, well, maybe just get some case narratives of, well, what do you do when someone is sick? And is providing a local resource actually a, a provide them with a a big convenience. I think I would ask you first, do you have a planning group assembled that really appropriately and accurately represents the community stakeholders that you want to work within? So is your planning group, well, if you don't have one, I would Mm -hmm. recommend you put one together. (laughs) And when you put one together, or if you have one together, really take a look at it and make sure it's not just folks from the outside who think this is a great idea, mm-hmm. or folks who represent resources, but it actually represents different community members. So for you, with the project that you've described, I would make sure that you have 
folks on your planning group who represent local leaders, who re- represent um, maybe an average family or mother, people from not just the village you want to put it in, but other villages surrounding, so that you can have some input that's honest and isn't necessarily from a 30,000 you know, yeah. foot view. And then in terms of the questions, and these, this planning group will help you actually get to the right other stakeholders to answer the questions that you have. And I think the questions that you have seem to be the right ones, and you're going to be able to get the information in different ways, right? So as you said, direct observation. Um, I would spend time at the, the closest place where they are receiving health care to see what types of problems they're coming to the health mm-hmm. uh, clinic with. You could send out a survey to different um, villages around the area, asking them how far they normally travel, how often would they use the health clinic, and what would they use it for. Um, you could set up specific personal interviews. I mean, you should be doing all of those things in order to get a 360 view of the context you want to work in. Mm-hmm. You should also find out where the resources for that clinic are coming from. And if you setting up another clinic means diverting precious resources from that clinic. I think, you know, and Terry, you and I have talked about this politics in small communities ends up being probably one of the biggest challenges that outsiders overlook or don't appreciate enough. And getting local folks on your planning committee is the only way you're going to really crack that nut and have people tell you, well, this is what's happening um, because of this election, or this person really cares about that village, and they live in that village, and that's why there's a clinic in that village. And, and moving resources over to another village is going to create a huge political fight. These are the types of you know, things that you need to be really aware of as you begin your project. From this foundation on who to contact, collaborate with, and what to ask, I review with Pia my preliminary contacts, what I've gleaned so far, and she elaborates on the importance and techniques in developing trust, how to keep your mind open to what the community needs, rather than just on what you want. Yeah, and that's a great insight because, you know, so far I've had contact with the individuals that you would imagine is easy for me to get in contact with, you know, the educated ones who have email right. uh, and who can speak English. Right. And so, you know, current stakeholders are obviously the Alex Lowe Charitable Foundation and uh, Jenny, I've talked to uh, a bit about the vision. I've also spoken with individuals that have been to the uh, village multiple times. And then I've also spoken with the lead physician that staffs the closest hospital, Mm -hmm. which we're hoping to integrate with and who was also happy to meet with me and has also let me know that there is a candidate who's training to be a a health post provider in this community in Forza. The big question I have is exactly what you brought up is what does the community think about it? Mm -hmm. Are they actually really excited about it? Is this health post worker excited about working there and having a partnership with the next hospital? And then are there some community members that are actually worried about is this going to bring in people from other villages to their village just to come to the mm-hmm. health post? Is there, do people not like this woman who's going to be working there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
we have, and, and just from a timeline perspective, the reality is this building and this clinic really won't be completed at the earliest for over a year. Mm-hmm. So we're not even talking about even opening up a clinic at all until a year, year and a half, realistically. So mm-hmm. it's uh, we really mu- very much are in kind of pre-planning phases. I think one of the things that is important in doing this is is really trying to think of this as a community capacity building exercise as well. So mm-hmm. to the extent that, like you said, and this is very common, it's really easy to access people who speak English. It's really easy to access people who self-elect themselves into the process into communicating with Westerners or outsiders. It is much more challenging and yet most important to figure out how to work with and communicate with local folks who don't feel comfortable participating because of cultural barriers or English barriers or other issues. Working with a translator, working with someone who's a trusted community member who's willing to to be that bridge for you uh, is important. And then also investing in the time and mentoring it might take to get somebody to participate on your planning group who might not speak English very well or at all, who isn't used to working with Westerners, but who does have a lot of community knowledge, who is a respected community leader, perhaps. That takes time, but it's worth the investment. It's worth the effort. And it's with a long-term impact in mind. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I know from what I know of you, Terry, that you wouldn't want this clinic to be seen as a Western-only clinic that is catering and taking in resources for outsiders. You want it to benefit the community. And I would assume that you want it to be a, seen as a community resource that only you know raises the level for everyone. So to that extent, I think you have to do what you can to bring folks in who wouldn't normally come in the door to yeah. talk to you. Right. It makes me think of another a topic, which I think is really important here, is how to develop trust in the community that enables them to actually want to talk to you and participate in mm-hmm. giving you their opinion. Because I imagine some communities could be a little hesitant to engage. And I'm thinking specifically of uh, another interview I had with uh, Paul Charlton, who's done a lot of work in Pakistan. And this was indirectly part of the reason he decided to eventually become a physician is because he did a lot of NGO work with earthquake recovery work in Pakistan, and he found that it was very difficult to even engage individuals in the community in the survey process unless it was very clear that they were giving something right then and there. And he found that the delivery of healthcare, I mean, just simple stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like giving out some a couple Band-Aids or cleaning up a wound was a true demonstration of your investment or your motivation and then it became much easier to ask some of these other questions and have them trust that oh actually these guys are going to come back and help us rebuild Mm -hmm. these buildings because it's not happening right then and there Mm -hmm. you're just asking these questions and you're kind of promising it may happen in six months or 12 months Mm -hmm. but they have to really believe that you're invested yeah and i also think it's important for all of us in our work if we want to change the world is to keep our own minds open so Even if you think that you know what the solution is, which is opening a clinic in Fort Zee, I would be um, less obvious if I was doing the surveying and work. What you really are doing is not opening a clinic in Fort Zee. You are trying to assess what the best way to deliver more expedient access to healthcare 
would be Absolutely. in that region. And that's really what you want to know. And maybe it's a clinic in Fort Say. Maybe it's something else. You don't necessarily know. You have a hypothesis that right. it's a clinic in Fort Say. What you're going to find out through your needs and resource assessment if is whether that hypothesis is correct. Or maybe you'll find out something very valuable that will shape and inform the plans that you have underway. Because really the objective is to make sure that there's access to both emergency care and regular everyday care, I assume, to make it so that people don't have to trek a day to this village. So you're going to find out. And I think that making sure you present yourself that way when you're out gathering information is the best way to make people feel that they have a place, they have a voice in what isn't a foregone conclusion, yeah. but but is truly an investigation about their needs and what they need and what they want. The other thing is to be culturally sensitive whenever you're someplace. Maybe people aren't, I've found working in Central America and South America sometimes, people aren't, and Asia, people aren't necessarily open to speaking to a man all the time, especially if you're surveying families and households where women are really making a lot of the decisions. So being thoughtful about that and having a woman who speaks the language maybe do the survey for you. And to your point, um, with your example in Pakistan, having an immediate benefit like Band-Aids or mm. doing a quick, you know, whatever assessment of children in the home or blood pressure or something that shows yeah. this is the kind of care we're talking about that would be easy for you to get if you needed it every day. That's also really important. So I think being open-ended about your investigation up front, being culturally sensitive about who is asking the questions and showing an immediate benefit are all very important, especially working in developing countries. Right. It's a very subtle difference between asking a question or presenting to a village, hey, we're building a clinic, versus asking, we want to know how to best take care of the health of your community. And the former comes from this kind of anchoring bias that we've already figured out what's mm -hmm. best for you without even asking you. Mm -hmm. And it comes from that position that uh, I think you mentioned when we were talking earlier, this, this kind of hubris about your objective. Like, I'm going to show up to this village that definitely needs me. I'm going to build this pretty <laughs> clinic. And then we're going to have this nice plaque to, so right. that everybody knows who did this. Right. Well, and you game the answer if you ask that question. And you do, yeah, because you if come you, in with your bias. If about you say, what, you what do you think, if you're asking yeah. people, what do you think about a clinic in Fortsy, mm -hmm. it's a very different set of answers than if you ask them, you know, what would make it easier for you to, what kind of health needs do you have? And what would make it easier for you to take care of those health needs? We know that you travel a day right now. So leaving that an open-ended question, I think, will give you very different answers than asking them to merely react to a foregone idea. Right. As our conversation continues, we talk about how formal surveys are intimidating and talk about other ways to get answers. PA reviews ways perhaps we can break down the barriers and form alliances to get accurate information from our community now and also into the future. I think it is intimidating 
to, to ask someone to sit down and fill out a survey sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Especially so you, if language is a barrier right. and education is a barrier. Right. And I'll benefit from having two or three weeks in the community and that will help. But I think there's other ways to get at the root of the needs and, and that is asking community members about interesting or uh, impactful stories of mm-hmm. when someone got sick. Mm-hmm. But in the process of being there, actually delivering some care or letting the villagers know that we're willing to see mm-hmm. individuals if they have a health ailment because there's going to be a few doctors there will also give us a little bit of um, kind of an epidemiologic insight to what sort of problems they're dealing with without actually really asking them what sort of problems they're dealing with. Absolutely. Like- <laughs> and healthcare is really interesting because you can, if you've got a number of doctors visiting for a set period of time, yeah. you could do a pop-up healthcare tent. And exactly. as people come in, you can ask them questions. When was the right. last time you had a checkup? Right. When was the last time you had a, you know, a prenatal checkup? When was the last time you had an inoculation? And as you're giving these benefits out, you're taking some information in. Right. And also, I think in developing countries, just observation is, is a big one. Um, if you're able not just to speak to the doctors who are providing services at that clinic that exists, but spending a few days there and just observing who's coming in, how many people are coming in, what are they coming in for, and maybe you'll be able to ask questions of people as they come and go. Absolutely. So you introduced uh, a little bit you know, this idea of a, of a planning group, and I, I, you know, I have you know, some thoughts on that already. The, the trick with the planning group, I feel, sometimes is, uh, I guess I'm curious how, in a short period of time, do I know that the you know, the one house mom, the DD that I spoke to that had some really important input and who was kind of part of my planning assessment in the first two or three weeks there. How do I know that she's still kind of engaged and involved, even though I'm continuing these maybe email conversations later on? And that's that's a little tricky for me to kind of understand that. Well, you know, working abroad, working in another country is really challenging. It has a whole host of other challenges than working in your own community that you live in, obviously. And I think personally that your chances of success always uh, depend on your ability to have a good anchor partner who's local in the community that you're wanting to work in. And so in your planning group, you need to identify one or more Mm -hmm. local partners who are your lockstep colleague in this and it has to be a local community person it has to be somebody who speaks the language it has to be somebody who's embedded in that community we can't always have that but i guarantee you your chances of success are much higher uh, if you do have that person and then that's the person who will be your main contact and will help rally and and liaison with other folks on your planning group who are local who may not have access to email, who may not be a regular communicator long distance, but who that person can literally yeah. go speak with, have tea with, talk to, and report back to you. And it may be that I'll have to evaluate or set up almost a two-step process. It might be that my my key liaison is the woman who's training to be the health aid post provider, but mm-hmm. I find out that she doesn't know any English and mm-hmm. she doesn't know how to operate a computer. And so therefore I'll have to recruit a friend of hers mm-hmm. who's a, uh, you know, a house mom, a DD that has a, a homestay there and who's mm-hmm. got a con- who understands using email and has some grasp yeah. of English and then therefore can be 
absolutely the intermediary for communication i was gonna say in those yeah. types of situations you know luckily you do have people who run guest houses or tea yeah. houses who deal with travelers all the time yeah. and who do have to be somewhat smart about internet and english and so if you can get someone on your planning group who represent, and that's a business owner, right? That's somebody yeah. who's in touch with the pulse of travelers coming in and out of that village. That's somebody you'd want on your planning group anyway. And then you'd have to see if they'd be comfortable sort of stepping up and, and serving as communications organizer mm-hmm. for your group and your work. What would you envision would be important research that I do even before I get there so I can make best informed questions, basically, you know, uh, educated questions? Right. It depends on where you're going, but clearly there's information that you can find from government sources, statistics, survey, census information. You already have, with your specific project, contact with the existing clinic. So you can think of the the input intake data that they have that they'd be willing to share with you if they can share with you. Mm-hmm. So um, a perfect example would be how many people come from the village of Forte to come visit this clinic. I mean, yeah, I mean, what is their feeder pattern for mm-hmm. into that clinic for for treatment, and is it just Fort Say or is it other villages? What percentage of their clients or patients are Westerners or travelers versus locals? And if they've been there for a long time, they know, these doctors know exactly what's going on in the communities. They know who they see and who they don't see. They know what the needs are um, in the community based on who doesn't come into that clinic. If the vast majority of of villagers are not actually coming through that clinic but once a year, you can pretty much bet they're dealing with their health care issues a different way. So that's an easy sort of baseline set of data you can get from the local clinic providers. And then beyond that, it does get challenging when we're talking about developing countries and we're in, in villages that are remote or not easily communicable via email from afar. So that's where your planning group is going to be more important than ever. I personally think you need to put together your planning group very smartly, um, spend your time when you're there on the ground, identifying who that group is, solidifying it, making sure that you understand your communication channels very clearly, and make it very clear that this isn't a top-down community solution. This is a grassroots community solution that you're trying to investigate and build together. I think with a community like that, you are going to depend on being on the ground observation. You can assign tasks much more with your group than you might if you were there. So you need to have the different community representatives who represent different stakeholders really do things for you. You can do a survey that they can informally give to their own stakeholder communities. You can set up personal interviews, but give them a template to follow where maybe they would be they would be more successful having yeah. tea with somebody than you would be. Yeah. So you're actually giving them the questions and tailoring the, the method of data gathering to who it is that they're gathering the information from. Maybe it's just a series of teas with different leaders that they're having one-on-one. Maybe it is a survey that goes out to at least all the tea houses because they're able to communicate in English and they can you know, check things off. Um, maybe it is doing a community health day pop-up tent where you're going to be there along with some other doctors and you're going to use that as an opportunity to intake answers on 10 questions that you're asking everybody who comes in to get a checkup. Yeah. 
You'll just have to get creative. I think it's going to be all of it. It's going to be all of it. <laughs> and I think it's an insight for the listeners out there to understand that, you know, the in order to get buy-in and to have emotionally invested stakeholders, it certainly is well more and beyond showing up and having people fill out a survey. Yeah, yeah. and it shows respect to the community. So yeah. I think one of the other things, and, and this is where we all can get impatient. We think that things are going to happen on a timeline that we... Yeah impose and that's not necessarily true i think we should have timelines so you should definitely have a timeline for yourself about when you want to collect all your information and when you want all your information back in how long you're going to take to analyze your data and then how are you going to report that back out mm -hmm. because you should report it back out and as you report it back out you're going to get feedback you're going to get reactions you're going to get responses and you're going to fold that all into your ultimate plan and it's going to shape what you do. We finish elaborating on the importance of reporting back your preliminary findings, of giving back something in return for the privilege for that little insight into their lives and how to set the stage for a lasting relationship. I do think that making a promise and delivering on the promise is always a good thing. Yeah. And I always think it's a good thing when you're asking someone to give you their opinion and to spend some time sharing with you that you promise them something in return. And so if it's feasible and real for you to turn around any sort of analysis or feedback in that period of time, then yes. If not, then you know, promise something that's more realistic. But for sure to say that we'd love to share back with you, tell them what you're doing. Always tell them what you're doing in terms of talking to all of the different community stakeholders so that they don't feel surprised that you're talking to someone else or maybe a group that they don't agree with or, you know, these, these villages and cities even. Everybody has different factions of mm -hmm. folks who've been doing work for a long time. Make it clear and transparent what you're doing and make it clear and transparent how you're going to report back and when and that you're trying to seek, um, this is an opportunity to bring resources to the table and put a solution on the table for something that is clearly a need, but a, you know, defining exactly what that need is and what the solution will be is something everybody gets to participate in. Right, and so at the end of my, my trip, my hope would be, I mean, I would love that I, would, I could deliver on, on that promise. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna get back to you with what you've told me and Correct me if I'm wrong here. One last opportunity for some feedback, you know, mm -hmm. hopefully not the day I leave, but a few mm -hmm. days before I leave, and then have in my mind uh, a fairly good sense of what their needs and, and what their needs are, really, mm -hmm. um, and then try to mold our initial idea to, to fill those needs as best as possible with the resources. You know, it's interesting. There was a, a project years ago that I was involved with that was here in the United States, but it was in an urban community that had a similar hypothesis that a clinic needed to be erected in that community mm -hmm. because most members of that community were not making it to the hospital 
we're not making it into care providers' offices. And after doing a needs and resource assessment, they actually decided that their hypothesis needed to be changed. It wasn't a static clinic. It was a mobile van that needed to go and park on certain days every week in certain areas of the community or else nobody would come. And that ended up being what they did with great success. But it was an interesting piece of community feedback. They found out that most of the moms and families, even if you erected a clinic, that they would have to travel more than X number of blocks to, they would just forego health care. They wouldn't go. Mm-hmm. But if they knew that this van on every Thursday from 2 to 6 would be parked on that corner, then everybody who lived within a few blocks of that van would show up uh, once a month for checkups and screenings and inoculations and things like that. So that was a, a yeah. slightly different delivery method that they came to after assessing what the community would actually use. Yeah, I may be surprised to find that they're really excited about the idea of a clinic and a health post provider being there full time, but they may have really tight relationships with neighboring villages and they might say, well, it'd be great if she's here, but do you think she'd be willing to walk over to this other village and help out my my auntie who's over there? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe it's something, maybe you'll find that that standing clinic where it is, is sufficient, but if there was a roving, Mm -hmm. you know, group that went to five different villages once a month, Mm -hmm. that would take care of the needs that they say they have. You never know. And make them feel like they're not the sole beneficiary of this outside NGO. It makes them feel maybe less, I don't know. Any sort of emotion. Again, I'm just making it yeah. up, right? I don't know until I you ask. You won't know until you ask. Because someone might feel like really kind of ashamed that there's all this money coming in just to their village, but their sister who lives in the other one is not getting it. And so then they don't really want it because it just creates this friction with the family. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that the most important thing is to have an open mind mm-hmm. as to the great privilege and the great resources you're fortunate enough to sort of help bring into the community and being open enough to hear from the community what works best for them. And being able to adjust your assumptions as you learn more. Right. Absolutely. And really, the, the main objective here is, one, knowing really what's going to be in best service of the community. But the process of actually doing it mm-hmm. is what develops the trust in you and the community mm-hmm. buy-in. And that alone will likely enable some longevity to your project. Yes. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. It's the, the process is in and of itself important in that it gives you the data that you need to craft your project plan. But more importantly, the process is the means by which you become an honest thought partner with your community and that this becomes a community endeavor, not an external endeavor imposed on the community. And it gives people permission to speak It gives people permission to have a say in what happens in their own community. And it makes people embrace the outcomes as something that they want to be a part of for a long time. Right, right. Well, I'd be really happy if I'm able to uh, develop (laughs) that with uh, the village of Fort Say by the time I'm done about a month from now. Well, I Uh, will say this, that nothing, you know, change is slow. And many of us get impatient and want things to happen so quickly when we think we've got a great idea and we see a high need and we we think we can fix something. Community building and community work at the grassroots level is 
usually much more time consuming to do well and to do right, but it's a long game that you're playing. It's not a short game. And that's something just to always keep in mind when you get frustrated with communication lags, or especially when you're working abroad, somebody drops off all of a sudden and you can't, you can't get in touch with them anymore. Or, some, you know, there, there are many things that we, I think, in our fast paced world will get frustrated at, but that's, that's part of the commitment to the work. Too. That is part of the commitment to the work. Absolutely. Um, and yet within that, it is nice to have some reasonable goals and objectives in the short term. And I think you've really helped me establish that. And, you know, I know who I want to talk to. I have a sense of how I'm going to ask the questions, Mm -hmm. other ways that I can get information without just directly asking the question Mm -hmm. (laughs) and having an objective to try to report back and get their feedback of my assessment of what I think I've heard they need. (laughs) Absolutely. And that seems like a really reasonable goal for me Mm -hmm. for this, this first month. And then Obviously, I'd love the opportunity to talk with you more as uh, we work through this process in the future. And I think in follow-up, we can kind of talk about what what really happened and then uh, how we take the information and start planning. And then, of course, obviously the final stage and following up and making sure that you've done something meaningful for the community. Well, if you guys enjoyed that episode but had a hard time digesting or keeping track of all the details, I'll tell you what. Pia put together a great outline and synopsis of the episode, and we'd love to send it your way. Please head on over to our site at theadventureactivist.org, sign up for our newsletter, and we'll send a copy to you. To learn more about Pia or check out some of her work with her husband and world-renowned explorer Jerry Moffat, please check out their site, www.thunderdragonfund.org. Later this summer, we'll follow up on this interview with some interviews I recorded while out in Nepal in Fort Say trying to follow the roadmap Pia put together for me. We'll review the key components of the process through my conversations with the key stakeholders and outline our action plan for the months ahead. It looks like I'll be heading back to Nepal in December and I'm looking forward to the opportunity to keep the project going. All right, well, another reminder, we here at The Adventure Activist have been helping to coordinate a conference here in Sun Valley, July 31st through August 3rd. We're welcoming 250 leaders and innovators in an effort to accelerate the transformation to sustainable and secure communities in the face of modern threats like climate change. A lot of big names still on the docket. Microsoft, Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, Hewlett Packard, Rolling Stone, The Economist. This year, we're happy to bring Patagonia, Wilderness Society, Protect Our Winners, and the Five Point Film Festival to the fold. To see more about the conference, go to sunvalleyforum.com. We'd be happy to have you just for one night at our event with the Five Point Film Festival on August 3rd at the Limelight Hotel. Come check it out. Okay, usual business. Thanks to Evan Phillips for helping out with the production of this episode. We connected through his amazing podcast, The Fern Line, about climbing in the great ranges of Alaska. Please check out his podcast, or even better yet, purchase some of his music on iTunes. New album coming out soon, Cabin Vibes. Thanks for listening to episode 13. We hope you've been with us from the beginning, but if not, check out the other episodes on our site on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. If this or prior episodes sparked conversation or inspired you on your next adventure project, please let us know. We hope you learned something in this one. And you know what? If you want to support us, the best way to help us out is to tell a friend or two. Give us a good review, click some extra stars our way, or even better, just keep sharing with your friends. Your show of support, as always, means so much. Thanks all and keep adventuring.